you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Um, as you flip there, just a couple things. Um, uh, we, na- we announced a couple weeks ago uh, about the opportunity that we have to purchase this building that we're in. Um, currently, we've been leasing this building um, from another church that we've gotten to partner with, and now we have the opportunity to purchase the building. And so there's a letter in your program, an updated letter. If you've read the one before, it's an old one. Uh, there's a new one this weekend. Um, it's an updated letter just from me, just detailing out uh, the process of some money we need to raise uh, in order to secure a loan um, and how our network is also helping us with that. And also we've uh, added a pledge card in there. If you wanted to make a pledge, one of the things our, our network is supporting us in is that if someone says, man, I'd love to give $1,000, but I don't have that right now, they can do that uh, for up to 12 months in, in payments, write that on a pledge card, and the network will uh, front that money for us to be able to secure the loan, uh, which is an incredible blessing. In fact, they're also paying half of the 100000 that we need to cover. So that's uh, one of the uh, great things of working with other churches and being a network uh, together. And so that's a great opportunity for us. There's also a a large upstairs space uh, where there are other tenants and that generates income. And so just really encourage you to read that letter. Uh, It tells a lot of detail of how this is working, how we got here, uh, and what we hope to do uh, with that. So just want to encourage you in that. Um, So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Um, if you're just joining us this morning, we are going through a series in the book of Philippians called Together for the Gospel. And a couple important things to note about this letter that uh, are really kind of uh, some helpful context uh, is that one, uh, Paul is not the pastor writing from his office in the church building. He is in prison. Um, and not like the prisons that we most uh, often think about, uh, orange suits, cells for two uh, people at a time. He's more in, in like a dungeon. Uh, he's literally being chained to a jailer on rotation so that they can keep an eye on him because he's a big threat to the community. And the reason is not because Paul's an aggressive guy uh, physically and trying to attack anyone. He's aggressive with the gospel. And so really what they've done is try to uh, hide him off, but Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and his message just continues to burst with joy. Um, In fact, one of the things we saw earlier in chapter uh, one is that Paul really says, listen, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Listen, if you're going to kill me, I get to stand before Christ and in all of his glory, and this is going to be really good for me. If I stay in the flesh, I'm going to continue to do the work of spreading the gospel. And and so really, if you think about it, as we've talked before, what do you do with a guy like that? You, you, You beat him up and you throw him in prison. He converts everyone and says, God, thank you for the opportunity. You try to kill him, and he says, please, you'll you'll send me home to my Savior. I mean, that kind of guy is very annoying to the non-believer, and he just keeps pressing in. And Paul is doing that specifically with joy to this church in Philippi. And we get to the point in the the text of chapter 2 where Paul begins to really paint a picture of a contrast between where the world is at and where the Christian is at in the midst of that world. I mean, if we look at today, how our world is, we live in a dark world. And I don't mean in the physical light sense, but we have sex trafficking. In our culture, we see the porn industry. 
the sexualized culture as a whole, it doesn't matter where you're at. Young people see some form of pornography every day on, on social media, uh, in magazines, in other publications. We see death all around us from suicide to abortion to bombings to shootings. We, we see the, the growing concern of, of racial divisions uh, of a further hatred towards one another. And, and even one of the things that we see sadly in the church is a growing division and an apostasy in the church. And on and on it goes. I mean, this really turns, turns the tone, and I can even feel that in your silence. We know that we live in this dark world, and it's deprived, and it's broken, and we feel the weight of that. And so really, we live in a dark world that's filled with those who are hurting and are broken. They're searching, man, how do I be made whole? And they're trying to fill that and trying to find an identity and all of these things. But in the midst of that, their greatest need is to hear the saving grace and truth of Jesus Christ, to trust in him alone for their salvation. And so the important question really comes up for us that I think we need to answer as we get into the text is, how are we to live in a dark world? How are we to live in a dark world? And Paul's going to go on to say, as lights shining in the world that are following the example of Christ. And so as we get to the text, what's true is that it's never tiresome to have a reminder on the importance and the practice of true Christian living. Paul knew that when he wrote to the Philippians. Often when we feel tired of, of a reminder, it often more reveals our need for a reminder. And so Paul is, is not short in explaining the need and clarity for Christian living. I mean, really, we could, for an example, we could even go to the old Sunday school song and learn and reflect on it. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a, a bush? No, I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine until Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. See, isn't it funny how complex we tend to make it? And truth be told, there are biblical principles that are valuable to live out the Christian life. The Bible as a whole really shows us through the example of Christ how to live the Christian life. But isn't it funny how complex we often make that? And we tend to philosophize and we overthink the Christian life rather than faithfully do it. But again, the source is important when considering how we let our light shine. So in the text we're, we're looking at today, Paul gives the church guidance in their Christian living. And he points them towards a deeper working out of their salvation. And Paul has just finished presenting the example of Christ. How Jesus went from clothed in all of the majesty of God and then stepped down taking the form of humanity, of human flesh, and Christ humbled himself in obedience. And Paul said, even to the point of death on a cross. And so the text from last week that we looked at was about the humility of Christ and the great example of Christ and how it's connected really to this passage then. That really what we're seeing this week, although we've broken this into two separate messages, what we're going to this week is really a continuation. And so now as we look at how we are to be lights in the world, what Paul has set up for us 
is that as we looked at last week, the source, our example, is Christ. Our source for Christian living is Christ. In fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards once said, Christ is the true light of the world. And really, if we were to look, look at that further, we know there's many counterfeits of what type of light is. But Christ is the true light of the world, as Jonathan Edwards said. And what we know to be true of Christ as the true light of the world is that he invades darkness. He did this in ours, that the dark world that we feel like we're a part of, don't forget that Jesus has invaded that. In fact, John told us that in the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 5. He said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So just as we see here in regards to Jesus coming to earth as a humble servant, we also are to be lights that shine in the dark world. Because we need to remember that the Christian is not to be removed from this world, but rather we're to be set apart from this world. So that doesn't mean we're going to go off into the woods and homeschool our kids and be in this underground bunker and have nothing to do with the people around us. Because while we're still in it, we don't even act and look like it. But in the midst of being set apart, we still need to be active in it as lights. Because where darkness once reigned in the world, and even before in us, before Christ coming into us, the light now illuminates us, and we're to be lights in the world. And so in our text, we come to the point where Paul is instructing us how to live the Christian life, how to work out our salvation, and how it becomes shown. And as Christ shines in and through us as his people, others can then see the implications and the impact of our salvation, both in the church and in the world. And so what we're going to see and really unpack from our text this morning is that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, where we are shining as lights in the world that in suffering and faith, we rejoice together. That's our expositional outline this morning. And if you're taking notes, those are your fill in the blanks. That we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling where we are shining as lights in the world that, that in suffering and faith we rejoice together. So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 verses 13 or 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in verse 12, Paul began this section by stating, therefore, which always causes us to stop and ask in Scripture, what is the therefore, therefore? And as I said earlier, we should not miss the connection between the obedience Jesus showed and the obedience Paul expected of Christians as followers of Christ. And so here, Paul gives this example of Christ, as we saw earlier last week, and then in a manner of love, he gives them a very clear instruction, a clear command that he uses Christ's examples and then tell the Philippian Christians that they need to be living under the lordship of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that they need to have the right Christian conduct in their life as we see in the example of Christ. 
So he's motivating them in love and instructing them even towards a deeper obedience in Christ. And then we see Paul uses a phrasing that that some have looked at and some have grown confused by, some have actually confused the verse and, and really grown concerned by it. And at the end of verse 12, we see that he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we know from Paul's writing in the New Testament as a whole, if we're to read all of the Pauline letters, he's not saying that you need to earn your salvation, you need to work for it. He's not saying that. And he's also saying not that you need to be afraid or else you're going to lose it. So, you know, Paul preached that salvation is by grace alone, that God's loving act through faith alone, our trusting faith, and in Christ alone, Christ's perfect sacrifice. And so this is important because in our saving and our keeping was completely dependent upon God. So really, if I was to say it this way, if my saving and my keeping was dependent upon me, I would have lost it a long time ago. And so we see in the New Testament over and over and over again, the question is never asked, can I lose my salvation? It's over and over and over again, did you ever have it to begin with? And what we know true of the character of God is that because God has chosen to save us out of his own goodwill, out of his own choosing, out of his own glory, what God has saved, he keeps and he does not lose. What God has saved, he keeps and he does not lose. Now, we've talked extensively in our last series through the book of Galatians. We talked about this subject, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that, that subject that we talked about salvation. But as we focus on this text, what Paul speaks on this, working out of our own salvation, he's referring to what the Christian does because of receiving salvation. And in this working out, he's emphasizing that the Christian does this both intentionally and purposefully. And so Paul's point is that salvation, once received, must be put into practice through obedience. And so he goes on to tell us that we need to do this in fear and in trembling. And Paul's idea was not that we should live our Christian lives with a constant sense of fear or terror as the type of fear that wells up if we see a scary movie or someone pops out from the corner and scares us half to death. This is not Paul's referencing of fear, but that we should live with an awe and a reverence of the God that did the saving. And also really to have a sober outlook that we are hopeless without his saving and that the grace we've received is given freely, not by how awesome we are, but how awesome God is. And so we need to stand in, in an awe and a reverence of God. This is the fear that Paul's talking about. That when we live our Christian life, we must do so holding a healthy respect for the holiness of God. And to always have a reverence and a remembering that God is almighty. That, that you were not saved because of how awesome you are that despite how terrible you and I were, God chose to save us. And really living in this way will really challenge us to set aside all arrogance in everything we do. I mean, really, if we were to live with the holiness of God in mind, that, that we're not good enough on our own to stand before God, but by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, we stand before a holy God that is awesome and almighty, this would really cause us to look at our lives different, 
to really begin to just put aside all arrogance, that it would really cause us to be aware of our own pride and take away self-righteousness. And when we live out our salvation with this type of fear and trembling, it's that we're remembering the righteousness of God, the work that he's done in us and the work that he wants to continue to do in us. And so this type of working out is what we sometimes refer to as sanctification, this process of pursuing being holy as he is holy, being set apart for his glory. And so we don't become Christians through doing good works. It's by the grace of God, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But then once we we become Christians, then we have a need to grow as Christians in our living. And this is by the good works that we do. But really the important distinction that we've talked about before, especially when we went through the book of James, we looked at that we don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. This is something out of obedience that we do. And so we never want to make the mistake of thinking that becoming a Christian is the end result. It's only the beginning. That once we put our faith in Christ and become a Christian, only then do we begin to live the Christian life. And as we do this work, remember too that Paul tells us in verse 13 that he said, God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here what we see, Paul gives the reason why Christians must work out their salvation and how they work out their salvation in fear and trembling because God is working in them. Now, what John Calvin calls this is the two principal departments, that as we work out our salvation, it is the desire placed in us by the Holy Spirit to do the good works and the power of God to carry it into effect. So this would be the two principal departments. Now, do you see in that then who gets the glory? God, God alone. Because it was not your own nature. It was not your own goodness that caused you to decide to do good works. It's God working in you through the power of the Holy Spirit to stir your heart, to serve others, to care for others, to do the work that we have seen set as an example in Christ. And so our works and God's works, we need to understand, are not the same. But still, he gets the glory for both. And really, if we, if we think about it, and, and really what I would just kind of defer away from my notes for a moment, is that that really gives us freedom to not try to reach a level of success. Because really what we tend to do in our works is we tend to take this Sunday school answer, kind of like there's the star chart up on the wall, and if the teacher is happy with our works, we get a star. But it's not how that works. It's that the star is gone to God alone, and he uses us to see these things come to pass, that we are the feet and the hands of Christ, able to do these good works, but unto whose glory? God's glory. And so this is who gets glory for both. It's the two principal departments. And this is important because sometimes those works are something we, honestly, in the flesh, don't want to do. Sometimes we just get selfish and we just kind of focus in on how we feel, what we want. And so sometimes we don't share the gospel with our coworkers, with our unsaved family, with our neighbors. Sometimes we don't 
give, uh, especially financially, even sometimes more than, than, than what we would want to do, we just begin to be selfish with our own resources, not wanting to give of our time and serving others, even, even in a time when it's thankless, because we're looking for that star. We become arrogant of our own good works, and we're hoping for a really good outcome that just makes us feel good. And here's what we know to be true of God's work in us. It is a transformative work for his glory. That as we do good works, there begins to be a change in us to be more and more and more like Jesus. And so let me tell you something true of the example of Christ in his life giving glory to God is that you can't outserve God. You can't outserve God. You can't outgive God. You can't outwill God. So consider this as you, as you give. There's no amount that you can give. And at that point, God goes, man, how awesome are you? Because God owns it all. And so as we do these good works, it's unto the glory of God. So the work we continue to do is because of the work he has done in us through the person and work of Jesus. And we see further in verses 14 through 16, Paul describes how we are to shine as lights in the world. He begins to describe some of our conduct as Christians and how we continue to work out these good works. He says, starting in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul here has more to say about the Christian life. In verse 14, he told the Philippians that they are to do everything without grumbling and disputing. Or in other translations, when he says disputing, he's saying complaining. So let me just tell you, when he says, just so I can reference this for clarity, when he says, do all things, in the Greek, that means everything. So there isn't an area he's left for us to grumble or to dispute or complain. He's saying, do all things without those things. I mean, really, we, we can see the theme of Paul's entire letter is joy. And really, the opposite of joy is grumbling. And so if we're going to live for Christ... It must be out of joy and not out of complaining. And Paul didn't want the Philippian Christians to be whiners or complainers. He wanted them to be joyful. I mean, really, to be honest, there's something wrong with a Christian who always has this uh, attitude of being pessimistic with their outlook of life, or they're argumentative, or they're just restlessly in a, in a negative demeanor. I mean, too often, in fact, Christians complain more than they invest, and they grumble more than they give. And I say this not to you as a fact of you. I say that as us. When I write these things and I'm communicating these things to you, I feel them in myself. How easy it is, it is for us to complain about something that's not cleaned, a ministry that's not taken care of, and yet the biggest need is for us to look and, and consider that not as someone else's job but potentially is our job. And yet we overlook it. That's not my call. That's not what I feel like doing. And so what happens more and more in the Christian culture, 
and I would say the Western Christian culture. We speak more to what we're against and stand up and, and, and serve and speak not for what we're for, but for what we're against. Remember, this is not the first time in the Bible that we see grumbling among God's children. Even in the Old Testament, the children of Israel, while wandering in the wilderness, were complaining, even when God was good to them. We see in Exodus 14 that soon after being delivered by God, the Israelites began to express their discontent. We see this in Exodus 15. And they failed to recognize and even acknowledge God's provision. They were so focused on their own need. They were so focused on their own grumbling. They didn't even see God's provision among them. And after they grumbled against God about their food and Moses' leadership, God sentenced them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And we see that in Numbers 14. And in fact, what we see later in, towards the end of Numbers 14 is that until the entire generation that complained had died off, they continued to wander. So there's constantly been complaining in the church, and God has remained faithful. He's continued to love us and move towards us. And now we see, as Paul is saying, don't have this kind of attitude that you miss the good work of God, not only that he is doing, but that he calls you to do. Because really, if we're always complaining and grumbling, then it's, it's truly a sign of an inward spiritual problem. So we need to be careful that we're not trying to serve God in an attitude of grumbling. And so Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing, without complaining. And in verse 15, Paul gives three things to describe how we should live in contrast to grumbling and complaining. He tells us to be blameless, which is really above reproach. It means that in your life, no serious accusations of you can stick. Now, people may grumble, and they may complain, and they may see, say things about you, but it means that you are truly blameless in a way to where those false accusations are not going to stick. And Paul says that we need to be innocent. And really what he means when he says that is that what you see is what you get. There's nothing lurking in any area of your life and a darkness of your life that once exposed is going to bring up an issue that you're living a double standard life. And so Paul's saying that we need to be innocent. And he also says that we need to be without blemish. And here he means faultless. That we would be fit to be offered to God like a lamb without a spot or a blemish. That we would be holy as he is holy. And so here's the truth. We, we can make an impact on the world. But it's making an impact on the world when our lives are visibly, observably, measurably, noticeably, and obviously different from the people around us. And so what this means is that through Christ in us, we are to be different to make a difference. We are to be different to make a difference, that our values set us apart from the surrounding culture. The problem why people don't understand Christianity, why they have such a problem with Christianity is because it doesn't look much different than their pagan lives. You just have some hippie guy named Jesus that you like to follow on Facebook, and this is the way you identify as a Christian. But Paul goes on to really draw a contrast between the world and the church. 
that he says the world is crooked and depraved. And here is Paul talking nearly 2,000 years ago about the culture that he lived in. Even now we can say the same descriptions hold true to our culture. In fact, it's always intriguing to me. It's humorous to me when people, and it doesn't matter young or old, will reference the Bible as, you know, the state of, man, I wish I could be in the Acts 2 church when everything was perfect. I wish I could be at this part in the Old Testament where things were easier. And then we read the New Testament. Let's say, okay, let's go Acts 3. Let's go Acts 4. Let's read the book of Corinthians. Let's see what's going on in these cultures that you find so beautiful and perfect. Because we see thousands of years ago, Paul saying, we are in a crooked and depraved world. And so we see now, thousands of years later, the same contrast applies. I mean, you know this to be true. I would not have to spend much time to convince you that the community or the culture that we live in is filled with a system that is against God. All you need to do is reference back to what we talked about at the beginning or to watch the news or to look online at the social media, some of the things that are happening in the world because there is corruption around us. There is a darkness that exists. And so Paul tells us in his day, they had all of that. Maybe not the news the way we have the news, not the social media the way we have the social media, not the technology the way we have technology, but it all comes back to a crooked and deprived culture, void of God. Let's say then, what are we to do? What are we to do in the midst of this? See, this is where Paul gives the further instruction in verse 15 that we are to be lights that shine in a dark world. And really, to be true, the the more darkness overcomes, the more opportunity we have to shine as Christians. And often in our culture, we don't always think that. We don't always think of the, the concept that the more we face suffering, we must be doing something wrong. We must be needing to change something. But Paul doesn't look at it that way. He's saying, man, the more I face opposition, the more opportunity I have to share Christ. So this is what Paul tells them to do. In the midst of opposition, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of a crooked culture against God, shine as lights in the world. And really consider, let's consider for a moment the implications of what light does. Light makes things clear, makes them visible. It helps guide. It reveals warnings and it exposes darkness. It brings joy. I mean, you can see you're no longer blind. There's no stubbing your toe. There's no lurking around in the darkness at night. It brings joy, and we see that in many kinds. And it makes things safe. These are some of the things that light does. So wherever we go, whether work or or school or even our neighborhood, we have an opportunity to shine as lights for Jesus. I mean, let me even pause for a second and ask you that. What do your neighbors think of you? What do your neighbors think of you? Do you know your neighbors? I think this is a valuable question for us because how are we to be lights in a world if we don't know our neighbors? I mean, we can go back to the little kid's song, hide it under a bush, no. But yet somehow in our American culture, we've made our homes the little bush that we hide under. So do you know your neighbors? 
Do they know whether in disagreement with you or not that you shine as a light for Christ? See, Paul goes on to say that as this light is shining in us, we must also hold fast to the word of life. And here, Paul is referring to the gospel, the amazing truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I want you to understand this, church. The world is going to try and kill and steal and destroy your grip of the gospel. Darkness will try to creep in and steal the light. It will attempt that. But we need to remember that our great God has sent his son who is the true light and darkness has not overcome him. So remember, never forget that you have a need constantly for the gospel because the gospel is not only a guide of how to enter into the kingdom, it's a guide for how we live now as kingdom people. So we hold fast to displaying the gospel, to working it outward. So never stop reminding yourself the beautiful truth of the gospel that while you could not save yourself, God saved you. So that when you believe upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you become, as Paul said earlier in verse 15, children of God. We become children of God. And we see in the final two verses of this section that Paul writes about how he held fast to displaying and working out that gospel. That their faithful response to the gospel proved that his ministry had not been pointless. So we see this in verses 17 and 18. Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. See, Paul's life was going to be a sacrifice for Jesus Christ, either in life or in death. Remember, we know Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain. This is Paul's focus. And so this was a source of gladness and joy for Paul. And he really wanted the Philippian church to adopt the same attitude. And so again, we come to this consistent theme in the book of Philippians, joy. But remember this is joy not based on our circumstances, but quite the opposite. It's based on a life totally committed to Jesus Christ. I mean, remember the example that I gave in one of the first weeks that joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. So sometimes we don't feel joy But we need to remember that it's not something we need to earn. It's something we have that we need to begin to see in Christ Jesus. We we need to begin to ask that he would reveal that to us in the midst of our circumstances as he is in residence in our hearts. And here we see that Paul found much joy in the church and that they were continuing to shine as lights in the world. And so let me tell you, this is the true heart of a shepherd, of a pastor to his people. And in this, I resonate with Paul, not 
not in the sense of imprisonment. I can't imagine not being with you in that sense and still trying to be your pastor and express my heart that you would follow the truth of the gospel to live in relationship with Jesus. But what I resonate with Paul in is having an affection, almost a jealousy for your joy and your life to be rooted in Christ. Because I, I love you. I, I desire deeply that you would follow Jesus. I mean, for me, often what keeps me up at night and, and what keeps me deep in prayer is, is not the things that are going on in, in me, but the things that I constantly hear that are going on in you. These are the things that I have desired to dedicate my life to you, that you would follow Jesus. I pray often that God would do a work in us And really my desire, as I seek to continue to grow as a pastor, my desire for you is that you would know the gospel, that you would live the gospel, and that you would share the gospel. And in that, as you share, then you go back and you know the gospel, and you live the gospel, and you share the gospel. And so what we see in the life of Paul, that sometimes for a leader, this is costly, this is a great investment into others, and Paul's desire is that this work would have real kingdom impact. And Paul describes in verse 17 the real possibility that his life and his ministry were coming to an end through the sacrifice of martyrdom. So with, with Paul's death in mind, he's encouraging the church to be bold and to be joyful and to continue his ministry, his ministry of the gospel. And in verse 17, Paul mentions being poured out as a drink offering on their behalf. Now, I, I've heard many other people pray this and, and really mention this, that we'd be poured out. And, and we really sometimes just kind of in the English, when we read this, we, we just kind of take that as, man, yeah, poured out as like, I'm going to give of myself. But Paul's talking about his death. Paul's talking about to the point of death, he's giving of himself. He's referencing back to an Old Testament practice that, in, that we see in Numbers 15, where it explains that there is a sacrifice on the altar. And on that sacrifice, the priest would pour out a wine drink that would be poured out on the altar along with the fa- sacrifice to go up to God. And when pouring the wine on top of the animal sacrifice, it caused the heat of the fire to immediately vaporize the wine and it turned it into a beautiful aroma. And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, if I end up losing my life, it won't matter to me as long as you live for Christ. As long as you continue to do this work, I am willing to die. And with that statement, we come to the bottom line of Christian service. How our Christian conduct should be and how we live as lights in the world. Really that we would say, no matter what happens to me, my focus is to see that you follow Christ. That is what I would say to you this morning, and not easily. No matter what happens to me, my focus and my desire is that you would follow Christ. This is what Paul is saying, and he's concluding in this section that in verse 18, he's telling the church that in the midst of suffering and through faith, that they should be glad and rejoice with him. That if we want our Christian conduct to make a difference in the midst of a dark world, then we must do so with joy. 
that even when circumstances aren't going our way, that we would see joy in the midst of it. That we would respond like Paul, that no matter what happens to us, that our focus would be to see that others follow Christ. Because really, if we're not truly living close to Christ, then our lights are not shining. There's no heart's desire to see that others follow Christ if you're not in relationship with Christ. But when we live for Christ, our light becomes bright before a dark world. And so really this begins when we put our faith in Christ. The Christian conduct is first and foremost based on a relationship with Christ. Remember, we don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. And so really, church, if we are to be lights in a dark world, we need to put our faith in Christ. So for the non-believer, that means confessing with their mouth that he is Lord, no longer living according to their own lordship, their own kingship, making their own decisions, but living in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because this is how you follow his humble example. This is how you learn to be more and more like Christ. You put your faith in him and be light as he is light in the midst of a dark world. And so this morning as we come to a close and and, and really consider this text and how we are to be lights in a dark world, let me ask you this. Are you following the humble example of Christ? Are you following the humble example of Christ? And I would encourage you, whether, whether you do not believe in Jesus, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, or you are a faithful follower of Jesus, that you would ask yourself this question. Begin to just, con- just continue to press into this question and, and just chew on this question this week. Are you following the humble example of Christ? And if not, then you put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray.